is my privilege to introduce uh, our, our speaker here this morning, Justin Lohman. Um, yeah. Justin is, uh, I've had an opportunity to walk with him through some life. And uh, there are certain people that walk with a level of integrity in the things that they do. And this happens to be one of them. And uh, yeah, absolutely. But the character that Justin has and the authenticity that's in his spirit, you know that you know that you know that this man loves Jesus Christ with his whole heart. And I just want to invite him uh, this morning to come and bring the message of truth that he carries to release the evangelistic heart that he has and to bring glory to our faithful Jesus uh, through his words and through this time. And so, Father, we just thank you right now as we posture our hearts to, uh, to receive uh, from your Son, uh, from one God that you have marked and that you've set apart, who serves faithfully amongst us, amongst this uh, community of Christ Church North Shore, week in and week out, not even hearing many of these messages. Uh, Lord, we thank you, God, for the, uh, the heart that you've given him. Father, we thank you for the deposit that you want to add to us today. And Lord, we declare that your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we thank you, God, that we just posture our hearts open here this morning to receive the fullness of what you want to bring through him. Thank you, Jesus. Be glorified. Amen. I grab my Starbucks napkin. Oh, my heart is so gripped by um, what Eric was saying. I want to show you my new baby. Come to me, baby. So here he is, Elijah, David, Justin, Loman. He's spitting up currently. Jaden Kira's new little brother. And um, fathering children, I've um, just got such a heart for the gospel. Uh, just seeing, seeing God's heart for people. And um, what Eric is doing right now is it has everything to do with what I want to share this morning. So uh, keep that in mind as, as we talk. Okay. Is it recording? Cool. Okay, so I'm going to start by reading today's passage from Scripture. Uh, as much as I love to encourage Bible reading, I'd rather you all just simply listen uh, to the Scripture right now and just soak it in as I read it, uh, rather than attempting to turn there in your Bibles. But I encourage you to find it later and read it over and over again so you can meditate on it. Okay, so it's um, Luke 7, verses 18 through 23. Um, our passage is framed in the context of Jesus having taught on loving your enemies and not judging others, as well as doing, not just hearing, the things that he teaches. He then performed many healings and miracles, and right before our passage, he had raised somebody from the dead. So all, all these are very convincing proofs of Jesus' claim to be the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. So we'll pick up in verse 16 for context. If I can find it. There it is. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. <laughs> Imagine him in a place like where Eric is at right now. Um, all these blind people, poverty-stricken babies and gutters, things like that. This is what Jesus encountered over there. It wasn't a nation like ours. 
And so he replied to John's messengers saying, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So I've titled my message today, We Don't Want to Miss It. In order to understand today's passage a little bit better, let's remind ourselves of just how amazing John the Baptist was. How qualified a man of God. Let's take a look at his resume and compare it to ours. To begin, Jesus said of John, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has been no one greater than John. So, Jesus said that he was the greatest person who ever lived. That right there is enough to qualify him in my book. Let's go a little further. John was the last Old Testament prophet. Yes, John is technically in the New Testament, but remember at the time of John, the New Testament hadn't happened yet. The Bible says that John was a man sent from God. His purpose? To prepare the way of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's chosen King. John's ministry was a long-anticipated ministry, spoken of by the prophets through the Old Testament. Jesus said that John was the Elijah who was to come. That is to say that he was the great prophet foretold more than 400 years earlier by Malachi, who was to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah in order to announce the appearing of the Christ. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, written about 700 years before John the Baptist, Isaiah says that John would be a voice of one calling in the desert to prepare the way for the Lord and to make straight paths for him. Thus, accordingly, John's message to the people was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was calling the people back to true righteousness so that their hearts would be ready to receive Christ. This was his calling as a prophet. John was raised by exceptionally godly parents. The Bible says that John's parents were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Zechariah, John's father, was a priest of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. And John's birth was even announced to his father by an angel standing at the altar of God in the holy temple while he was serving as priest. Again, John was really cool. (laughs) John was also a relative of Jesus. There you go. Put that on the resume. Put that at the top if I was him. Though the Bible didn't really say how much he knew about Jesus before Jesus publicly appeared. But John's parents knew a lot about Jesus, so they likely had communicated that to John. Luke says the following about John's mother, Elizabeth. When Mary, Jesus' mother, came to visit her while the two of them were both pregnant with John and Jesus. At that time, Mary got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home, John's father, and she greeted Elizabeth, John's mother. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John, leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. So we see that John's mom knew, even before Jesus was born, that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah. Did she tell John about this? Perhaps. I would imagine that she probably would. The point of this is that John probably had some uh, beforehand knowledge about, uh, about who Jesus was. So when John grew up, he was a nationally recognized prophet, feared by the people and religious leaders alike. His message was bold and truthful, exceptionally powerful and fiery, and extremely black and white. Of his, of his ministry, Luke says the following, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's ministry was so powerful and so anointed that people even thought that John himself was the Christ. Nevertheless, John was intensely humble, devotedly accepting his place in God's great plan, never using his own power to assert himself. Of course, as one might now presume, 
John was indeed the first person to recognize the coming of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, this was his whole purpose for existence. John was born, raised, and killed with no other purpose in life but to prepare the way for another person. Very humble. And he executed this mission with unwavering diligence, faithfulness, and perseverance. When Jesus appears on the scene, John immediately recognizes that he is the Messiah. And thereafter, John passionately turned interest away from himself onto Jesus, saying that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. That he must recede into the background now so that Jesus could take center stage as God's appointed prophet and teacher of the people. John witnessed the very beginning of Jesus' ministry at the River Jordan. He witnessed the Holy Spirit descend from the sky onto Jesus as confirmation of his anointing as the chosen one. He witnessed the heavens open up right before his very eyes, and he heard the audible voice of God the Father speak forth about Jesus of Nazareth, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He saw and he heard this with his own eyes and ears. And John himself said verbatim, I have seen and I testify, this is the son of God. If anyone ever believed in Jesus Christ, it was John the Baptist. Again, let's recall that Jesus said of John, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has been no one greater than John. Is Jesus telling us that up to this point, John was the most faithful of God's servants? Was his ministry really more important than all the prophets of times past? Was he really greater than Moses and Abraham, Jacob, Isaiah and Elijah, King David? Greater than all the great friends of God, the chosen leaders, the lawgivers, the prophets who shut and opened the heavens, performed great signs and wonders, died for the name of the Lord God, and wrote the holy scriptures that testify of the Christ even hundreds of years before his appearing. Was John really that great? Yes, John was that great. Jesus himself said it. John was the ultimate Christian. It is arguable, if we will humbly admit it, that he was far greater than any of us will ever be. And he was more faithful than any of us will ever be. He gave his very life for the purpose and message of God. For he was eventually beheaded on account of his ministry for God. Yet in spite of all of this, as we see in our passage today, John eventually began to doubt whether Jesus was the Christ. What happened? After everything John had seen and experienced... What caused him to have such strong doubts that he would send his own disciples to publicly question the relevance of Jesus' ministry and whether he was actually the expected Messiah, the Lamb and the Son of God, whom he himself had declared to be so? What on earth was John expecting that Jesus wasn't measuring up to? Ironically, John the Baptist's own dad articulates those expectations very well. At the time of John's birth, in Luke chapter 1, says that John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's the Messiah. That's who he's talking about. And he was declaring this at the time when they were pregnant with John and Jesus. He's raised up the Messiah, he says, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to enable us to serve him without fear. That last part is key, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is a common theme running through so many Old Testament prophecies. For example, the prophet Isaiah says of the Messiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father, Everlasting, Prince of Peace, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. That's exactly what they were expecting. They were expecting, to put it simply, that Jesus would get on a horse with a sword in his hand to overthrow the Roman government and the corrupt Jewish religious leaders, that he would set up an everlasting kingdom for the nation of Israel, expand its borders, and send forth the law of God into the pagan world to convert them. That was what John was expecting 
of Jesus. It should also be noted that this expectation was all the more pertinent to John at the time that he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he really was the expected Messiah. For at that time, John was in prison because he had offended the king with his preaching. So there he is, sitting in jail, soon to be beheaded, anxiously waiting for the Christ to do his job, to do what all Israel was hoping that he would do. Any time now, Jesus should be storming the castle, overthrowing their enemies, freeing him from prison, and setting up a kingdom of righteousness and justice for all the faithful people in Israel. But instead, Jesus was just out healing people and teaching people about a deeper spiritual relationship with God. Jesus was indeed preaching repentance, the fear of the Lord, and the coming wrath upon God's enemies and the unfaithful. But he wasn't doing anything about it. He just kept walking from town to town, healing people, having compassion on them, loving them, ministering to them. He was out spending time with the poor and with sinners and with weak people and old people and orphans and widows and lepers and stinky shepherds and dispassionate vagabonds. What on earth is he doing? John thought to himself. I mean, at first, it was refreshing to see Jesus behave so differently with the legalists, or than the legalists and the hypocrites and the bitter religious leaders, but why is he taking so long? Why is Jesus not asserting himself? What is he doing? Now, to be fair, John was not alone in his quandary. Jesus frequently reproved people for not having faith or understanding the purposes of God. He would often lament, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? That's Luke 9.41. We can all remember Peter rebuking Jesus for saying that he, Jesus, would die, to which Jesus kindly responded, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter misunderstood him. He misunderstood what Jesus was doing. Even Jesus' closest friends, those entrusted with his very own ministry, the chosen 12 disciples, they didn't get it. Continually, Jesus rebuked them for being so dense and having so little faith as to not understand the nature of his ministry and mission. Even at the very end of Jesus' time on earth, they didn't fully get it. The final question that they ever asked Jesus to his face, after the crucifixion, after his resurrection from the dead, after the subsequent time that they spent with Jesus learning about his mission to die for the sins of the world, even right up until the moment, right before he was taken up into the clouds and seated at the right hand of the Father, that very last question they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't get it. This is what John and everyone else was expecting. They didn't understand the depth and the power and the scope of what God was planning to do in the earth through Jesus. They didn't get the bigger picture of God's plan. And they didn't understand the heart of God toward this broken, sinful world. That God wanted to save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation under heaven. That he wanted the gospel of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ to go out into all the world so that over time he could make a spiritual nation out of those who believe, along with the believing Jews, a new Israel for whom he would return many centuries later. And to this day, we're still waiting for him. We're waiting for him to appear for us. Thus, they were expecting Jesus' kingdom to be an earthly one. And to be sure, it will be, one day. Zechariah, John's dad, did not prophesy in vain. He did not misunderstand the Holy Spirit. But what the Lord prophesied through Zechariah that day was a word about the second appearing of Christ, when he will come to the earth again. But this time, he will come in glory and fire to make all things right, to do away with sin and rebellion, to claim the entire earth for the Lord. From horizon to horizon, all will know that the Lord is God and that there is none like him, and that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the ruler over every ruler by whom and through whom all things were made. Amen? Amen? So then to summarize, John and everyone else firmly expected Jesus at his first coming to fulfill all of the governmental and political prophecies about the Christ. And when he didn't, they were confused and they were doubtful about whether he really was the Christ. And we've noted that John wasn't necessarily wrong in his expectations. The problem 
is that he was expecting the right thing at the wrong time. And moreover, because he was distracted with his expectations, he missed what Jesus was really doing. I don't believe that he permanently missed it because his disciples did go back and report to him what Jesus was doing. And as we all know, that's a quote from Isaiah 61, a messianic prophecy, evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. So in light of this, I want to ask us three questions. Number one, what do we expect of Jesus? How do we do what John did? The second thing I want to explore is, what does Jesus expect of Jesus? That is, what is Jesus' mission really all about? And the third thing I want to ask is, what does Jesus expect of us? What do we expect of Jesus? How do we miss it? In which way might our perspective not be the perspective of God? What false, or perhaps merely untimely, expectations do we have of Jesus? How do we allow our personal concerns and theological assumptions about the mission and purpose of Jesus to obfuscate the true, essential mission and purpose of Jesus. As we consider this, it might help us for the sake of sincerity and humility to ask ourselves, are we really wiser than John the Baptist? Are we more faithful than the prophet of God whose entire life was lived to point people to Jesus? Are we more passionate than the man than the man who never lived for himself and eventually gave his own life for the mission of God? Are we more discerning than a man of whom Jesus said he is the greatest man who ever lived? If we find ourselves among those who do not consider themselves greater than John, then it will be good for us not to let pride blind us to the self-examination and personal humility that the scripture itself calls us to. I don't know about you, but the fact that John the Baptist could struggle to understand what scripture says about Jesus makes me want to think twice about myself on a daily basis. Now, I'm not implying that we're all a bunch of heretics or apostates because we aren't as rad as John the Baptist. <laughs> John the Baptist and the 12 disciples were not condemned unbelievers simply because they struggled to understand what God was doing in the earth through Jesus. They were, they were faithful believers who sacrificed everything in order to run the race for Jesus. But the point is that they kept running that race. They stuck with it in humility, even in spite of Jesus' constant chiding until they gained understanding. They didn't stop short in the knowledge of Christ. They didn't stubbornly hold on to their own preconceptions about Jesus and his mission. They didn't ultimately attempt to force Jesus into the mold of their own ideas. They may have missed it, but eventually they got it. I will tell you a story. I knew a man, a sinner, who became dissatisfied with his sinful life. He wanted to live for something more. He didn't want to waste his life on purposeless existence and then to be held accountable for it on the great day of judgment. Knowing that Jesus is the Christ, he pursued the knowledge of God for several years, all the while finding himself unable to fully repent and give himself completely to Jesus because he didn't know what God's purpose was for himself and because his life was aimless and his family was very messed up. Surely God intended to reveal a wonderful plan for his life, right? Certainly God's mission was to fix his family so that he could follow Jesus and be a better person, right? Certainly he thought the most important things on the table right now are my own need for personal holiness, my need for life goals and vocational ambitions, the fact that I need a wife, the fact that I need a job, the fact that my family needs restoration and spiritual guidance, all good things. Assuredly, these things must come first if I am to be effective in the kingdom of God. Come, Jesus, fulfill the gospel in my life and make all things right, right now. This was me. And I tell you that God has made things right in my life. But not first. Never me first. God's needs first. God's purposes first. And then when he decides, he will take care of me as a good father. <clears throat> what are some other common expectations that Christians place upon the gospel? That is, what are some personal assumptions or pet doctrines that people wrongly presume to be the crowning jewel of the gospel? There's the generic gospel. God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
This is the one that I fell prey to. The problem with this is that it doesn't really have any depth. And it ends up creating more false converts than anything. Because it really never becomes anything more than that. Then God wants to have a plan for my life. And as soon as people discover that it is either suffering or, you know, something else, then they turn away. How about the emo gospel? We're all Seattleites. You know what this is. God wants to save the world through punk rock music. He wants everyone to realize that worship needs to sound just like the Ramones. Certainly, this is the foremost important attribute of the gospel. The philosopher's gospel. God's mission is to educate the world through me about how wrong they are about everything. I definitely fell prey to this in my 20s. Really funny to look back on. The crusader's gospel, or the political gospel. God's mission is to transform the government of my nation into a Christian one. Interestingly, not only is this potentially one of the most contentious of all, but it is actually most similar to the expectation that John and the Jews had upon Jesus, as we see in today's passage. Nationalism mixed with Christianity can be a deadly thing. <clears throat> but that's another sermon. <clears throat> and there's actually a fan- excuse me, fantastic example uh, in Eric's letter this morning, how the allegiance of that man was with his tribe more than it was with Jesus Christ, to the point that he got up and walked out on Pastor Eric. And of course... Nazi Germany is perhaps in all of our minds the utmost example of that. How about the word of faith gospel? Boats and coats, baby. Cars and bars. Jesus' mission is to bless my socks off and hook me up with a yacht. (laughs) Jesus needs to give me cash money to prove to the world that he is the one. There's a lot of good TV shows on that. The My Favorite Doctrine gospel. Jesus came to preach my favorite doctrine, that all might believe it and be saved. We see this in the denominational wars. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Social justice Christians versus Bible thumpers. Pre-trib rapture versus post-trib rapture. Congregationalism versus Presbyterianism. Catholicism versus Protestantism. Dispensationalism versus Covenantalism. Cessationism versus Continuationism. All these things that people think about all the time way too much. Hardly. I did before. The liberal gospel. Homosexuality is not a problem to God because he is loving. Abortion is not a problem to God because he is loving. Hell doesn't exist because God is loving. The Bible is wrong because God is loving. (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying that God might not raise up a country, for example, like the United States, for a time in order to accomplish some historical purpose of his. Again, I refer to the letter. Um, What God can do through Kenya is an amazing thing, and we all pray for it. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying that God might not want to bless us so that we might be a blessing to others. And I am definitely not saying that God doesn't want to bring healing and restoration to our broken lives and our families. Of course he wants to do that, especially that last one. What I am saying is that this needs to be framed within the context of God's eternal mission to save people from their sins. This is the foremost mission that God is accomplishing in the earth before his son returns. And that mission must come before any and every one of our expectations and favorite doctrines and personal desires and matters of perceived importance in order for those things to be held in proper perspective and revealed in their proper timing. If we do not put the gospel, the actual gospel, at the forefront of our lives, we inevitably make another gospel. The gospel of our own personal needs and expectations. The gospel of our own philosophies and political beliefs. The gospel of our own pet doctrines and lifestyles. If we place our expectations before the very specific ministry of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, we end up living a false gospel and missing the purpose of God, even if it's staring us right in the face. So that brings us to part two. What does Jesus expect of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us very straightforwardly in today's passage. It reads that when John's disciples came to Jesus to ask, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else, that he replied to them saying, go back and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What was Jesus saying here? 
To understand, let's refer back just three chapters earlier in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says about the same thing, or where he where he talks about the same thing one day in the synagogue, which is the Jewish version of church. It says that one day Jesus went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Everyone's looking at him, and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announced his own ministry that way. This is exactly what Jesus acknowledged of his ministry. This is what he was up to. He quoted one of the most incredible prophecies about the Messiah in the entire Old Testament. He was telling everyone in the synagogue and is now telling John in today's passage that he is absolutely the Messiah. And moreover, by drawing on this specific prophecy, he's explicitly emphasizing and articulating the nature of his mission to proclaim the good news of God's mercy on sinners, to the poor in spirit, those who are dissatisfied with the world's empty promises and vanities. To proclaim freedom from sin for those who are imprisoned by it. To bring recovery of sight for the blind, both physically and spiritually. To set the oppressed free from the strongholds that Satan has put on their lives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and grace and compassion and mercy. Jesus is saying, I am indeed the Christ and my purpose is to reveal God's heart to save people especially those who sense their need for the Father's forgiveness and healing and compassion. Yes, he says, I'm going to come in glory and power someday and take over the earth. Yes, I'm going to overthrow the kingdoms of this world and do away with the enemies of God. Yes, I'm going to set all things right. I'm going to bring an end to sin, and I'm going to wipe away your tears. But first, I have come to bring forgiveness and eternal salvation to sinners. Blessed is the one who does not fall away or stumble on account of me. That's a stumbling message, guys. Do you have any idea how hard it is to to have your life revolve around sharing the gospel with people? Blessed are they who do not look at what I'm doing and turn away from me because my purposes do not meet their expectations. Blessed is he who understands the heart of the gospel, who perceives the nature by mission. Blessed is he who is willing to count the cost of discipleship, to admit the brutal facts about following me, and that to give up his own life in order to help me accomplish my mission. Blessed is he who doesn't miss my gospel on account of his own. Blessed is he who doesn't miss it. So before we talk about the final portion of this, I just wanted to watch a video. So the guys are to bring that up. The job is not done in the world that Christ gave us to do and the mandate is still binding on us today. That's why we speak of unreached people groups. But the missions is the back-breaking, culture-penetrating, darkness-shattering initial work to penetrate, plant the church, see it flourish, get its own elders, train its own people, evangelize its own networks. That's the task of missions. It's not over. And that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And the alternative is hell. And millions and millions and millions of people are on their way there. And we have the only means of escape in our heads and in our hearts. Jesus Christ. There are many prodigal sons On our city streets they run Searching for shell This is an emergency. 
So count the cost, brothers and sisters. This is not an invitation to an easy life. For 2,000 years, thousands and thousands of missionaries, the unnamed, no biographies written about them, just unnamed people of whom the world is not worthy, have counted this cost and put their lives at risk and reached the loss with the only message of salvation.
What does Jesus expect of us? Jesus expects us to continue his mission, to preach his gospel. If you like organized lists, such as, like I do, you could say that the core, the essence of Jesus' mission might be considered according to three concepts. Charity, power, and evangelism. Number one, charity, a physical, tangible demonstration of the gracious and merciful love of God. That's what Eric is doing right now. This refers to all manner of self-sacrificial Christian service. Feeding the poor in the name of Christ. Caring for the fatherless. Spending time with the lonely. Exhorting the brokenhearted. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have any deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but then does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action. It is then dead. The gospel is empty without sincere charitable love performed by a humble heart in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. For this kind of love is at the very center of God's heart and it inherently brings him glory. Number two, power, a supernatural demonstration of God's authority. The supernatural power of God is very important to the gospel because it is a confrontational testimony to the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. Power is like direct evidence of the truthfulness of the good news of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And later in the same letter, Paul encourages the church to earnestly desire this greater spiritual gift, such as miracles and healing and prophecy. Why? Because the supernatural gifts empower us to love people by bringing God's restoration into their broken lives. Indeed, God often personally testifies to his interest in saving people by breaking into their lives with various miracles and healings and provisions. Thus, we ought to be crying out to God to cause these gifts to manifest more prominently among us as a body. Do we believe in them or not? And he will, because he is intensely interested in validating his gospel and demonstrating his love. Number three, evangelism. Good news preaching. Evangelism is arguably the most important part of Jesus' mission. The word evangelism comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which literally means good news. Likewise, the word gospel is of Germanic origin. It just means the good news. It's just another word for euangelion. The euangelion, the good news, is not just any good news. This word was particularly used in the context of victory in battle. Imagine a king having gone to battle with his army. And after having fought bravely in the face of adversity, he stands victorious. And on the way home, the king sends a herald ahead of him and his army who excitedly announces the good news of the king's triumph to all the people of the land. That is a neo-angelion. And that is what we are most explicitly referring to when we speak of the gospel and evangelism. We are heralds of eternal salvation. We are the ones whom the king has sent before him to proclaim his victory over sin and death to all who believe. This was Jesus' final commission to us. Indeed, it is the great commission. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Scripture also says that Jesus went through all the towns and the villages of Israel, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness 
And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus said that no student is above his master. If the preaching of the good news of salvation from sin through faith in Christ was so important to Jesus that he spent his entire ministry proving it, proclaiming to people that he's the Messiah, and then died on a cross for it, the Son of God died on a cross for this message. The Son of God died on a cross for this message. Then it should be important to us. Freely you have received. Freely give, he commends to us. He says, to whom much has been given from him, much will be expected. We manifest love and honor for God and for others most acutely by demonstrably letting other people know that God has provided an opportunity for them to be eternally saved from damnation for their sins if they will just turn from their sin and live their lives for Jesus. Can we say that we truly love people if we don't tell them this good news that we ourselves are so thankful to receive? We just sang about it all morning. What good is all of our charity if we don't use it to accomplish God's mission to save people through his son? What good is the power of God if we only use it to promote God's love in this life? Many will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment claiming to have done all these things. But Jesus will tell them, depart from me into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I never knew you. Truly, the love of God is concerned for the eternal welfare of people. This is what Jesus died for. To save human souls. And so the Father cries out to us, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God so loved the world that he did not withhold even the greatest self-sacrifice. We may have a form of love and compassion for people, but we need to ask ourselves the critical question, what are we doing that the world is not doing? Will we ever be more charitable than Bill Gates? Doesn't the world routinely raise and deliver millions of dollars in aid for the poor, both at home and abroad? Don't the unsaved feed the poor? Don't they fight for human rights? Do they not often seek to uphold the law? Being a Christian does not merely mean being a good person. It means that we have trusted in the name of God's one and only Son so that we will not eternally perish by the wrath of God on Judgment Day, but instead we'll have eternal life. That's who we are. That is the core of what we have to offer people. If we have nothing else, if we're broken, we're poor, we have nothing at all, just like Paul often had, cold and lonely, we have that. Jesus demonstrates to us the true love that he expects of his disciples to go to them, even if it costs us our lives, and to freely give them this incredible gift that we ourselves also receive for free, not on our own merit. Do we love the world as God so loved the world? Would we give our one and only son our money, our time, our self? Do we love them enough to tell them about the condition of their souls and their need for Jesus? When they stand before God on Judgment Day, will they thank us for sharing eternal life with them? Or will they cry out to us, Why didn't you tell me? Will we stand confident before them, knowing that we did them right? Or will we be ashamed that we withheld the truth from them? So what is God saying to us as a body, as a group of believers? I think he might be saying this. Do you know who you are? You are sons and daughters of the living God. You have believed in the name of my one and only Son. You have believed that my Son Jesus was crucified for your sins and that He rose for your justification and that I have given you the Holy Spirit as a seal of my promise to erase your sins from my memory and to write your names in the book of life that you might live forever with me in righteousness, peace, and joy. Now go. Go tell others. Bring them with you. You can take nothing out of this world with you but your soul and the soul of others. All the rest of this stuff will be burned with fire when I renovate the earth to purge it from every trace of sin. But a human soul lasts forever. I do not desire that anyone should perish, but that all should be saved. 
but they must make that choice to believe and be baptized. But how will they know unless someone tells them? Will you tell them for me? Will you continue the mission of my son to save people of this world from their sins? To create for me a holy nation of chosen ones whom I will enjoy forever? Go, go forth into the earth and proclaim my gospel while you still have time. I, Justin, believe that all of us came here to plant the church at North Shore because God put this message in our hearts. We're all different in so many ways, but there is this common thread running through all of us that we want to see faith met with action. We want to do something about our faith in Jesus. We came here because we are a people who don't want empty religion or boring meetings. Amen? You can only sacrifice your life for those things for so long without getting bored and dry and restless. But show me where I can sacrifice my life for the work of God, for a chance to touch the power of God, for an opportunity to hear the raw preaching of the gospel to the glory of God and Jesus Christ, his son, and I'll be there. That's who you are, Christchurch North Shore. That's who you are. That's why you're here, because you want more out of life, because you want God out of life. You want to lose your lives for the power of the gospel. All of us know that there is something special about us as a people. That's why we continue to assemble together. But if we don't follow that perception to its logical conclusion, it will forever remain a pleasant sentiment. Why are we unique? Because God has called us to be real, real Christians who actually love each other, who actually love the lost and the broken, who actually love God with our lives and are willing to pay the cost of discipleship. We are a people who understand and continue the mission of Jesus in the earth, a people who don't miss it, a people who get it. That's the end of my sermon. I don't really plan to, like, ad-lib after that. So and if anybody wants to know uh, how to <laughs> do evangelism or something, you can come talk to me. It's kind of like another 10 sermons in and of itself. But um, uh, yeah, evangelism is the core of what I'm talking about here. Um, but like I said earlier, there's a broader scope to it. And what Eric is doing right now, thanks for setting me up with that, God, by the way. What Eric is doing is such a great example of what I'm talking about. We just need to go. Just need to go. Love you guys. You can go home now.